One of the greatest obstacles to crafting health and wellness is identifying and controlling inflammation. It's at the core of all complex and chronic diseases, and it's the driving mechanism that underlies the most common symptoms that people like you struggle to overcome. Join us as we explore cutting-edge science and research to give you the information and tools you need to create the quality of life you want and deserve. And now, here is the host of Inflammation Nation, Dr. Stephen Noseworthy. Hey guys, welcome back. And we're still talking about autonomous health and the need to be relatively independent of the conventional medical system. So being autonomous means that you are your own doctor, so to speak, uh, that you make decisions and you take actions regarding the major drivers of chronic inflammation and illness, the things that are under your control. And there's a lot of those, right? And those, those major drivers are the choices that you make with respect to your diet, your lifestyle, and how you interact with the environment that we all live in. And so I want you to remember that every choice that you make is an input into a complex system of systems. I know it's a big statement, but just kind of think about it for a second. The human body is one system, but it's organized into subsystems, each of which have subsystems. So we are truly a system of of systems. So I want you to imagine, it's probably different analogies I could use, but just think about a computer that does complex computations or mathematical equations, for example. But in order for the computer to spit out an answer, you have to put information into the computer, right? You have to add information into, for example, an equation that then the computer uses to do these calculations to solve the equation to spit out an answer. So this is an input-output type of system. And that's kind of a simplistic way to think about how the body works. So realize that your dietary choices are inputs into your body that represent a set of instructions that tells your body to do something. So for example, if you follow a high-carb, low-fat diet, which was popularized back in the 1980s, your body is going to gear up the genes that encode for the enzymes that are used to break carbs down into glucose or into blood sugar, and it's going to upregulate the chemical processes and the mechanisms that allow your body to use glucose as your primary fuel source. And it will increase the output of things like insulin from your pancreas and inhibit the opposing hormone of insulin called glucagon. And the result is going to be that you have glucose uptake by your cells where your cells can then use glucose as a fuel source. But at the same time, if you follow a high carb, low fat diet, your body senses that you're not eating a lot of fat. So it down regulates everything involved in using fat as a fuel. And this episode today is not about metabolic flexibility, carbohydrates versus fat as fuel on the relative merits of each one of those. I'm just using this as an example to illustrate the concept of inputs and outputs and how the choices you make make a difference. Um, I remember back in the mid 90s, back when I was uh, doing mostly musculoskeletal work in, in a clinical setting, um, there was still a lot of fat phobia, especially in the early to mid 90s, which, of course, started in the 1980s. Again, that's where the high-carb, low-fat craze started. 
And we would routinely see people in our clinic who literally had, for lack of a better way of expressing it, injured their peripheral nerves with a very low fat diet. We would have someone come in, say, with, um, you know, like carpal tunnel syndrome. They'd have numbness and tingling in their fingers and their hands. We might see it in the lower extremity as well. And part of our prescription for that, if you will, part of how they recovered was to not just stimulate the nerve to increase activity and tissue growth, we would actually increase the fat in their diet, especially essential fatty acids and saturated fat, because these are the compounds that are used to make the protective myelin sheath that surrounds nerve tissue, that supports it, that insulates it, and allows it to send signals more efficiently. And the people that we saw who were willing to increase their healthy fat intake as we asked them to do, got better faster than those who didn't. In fact, they got better results overall because they changed the inputs into the system. The people who didn't add those fats to their diet, but went through the other treatments that we prescribed at the time, didn't get the same results. Different inputs, different output. And that's just one example of how a diet choice changes the inputs into your body. It changes what you're asking your body to do. It's a different set of instructions. And these, these inputs basically create a change or, or affect a different state of function. And hopefully this will make you think about what we talked about last time with how everything that happens with your health is a result of how your choices interact and influence your genetic potential. And, and remember that about 93% of your genetic blueprint is modifiable by things that are under your control. I heard a quote many years ago that really stuck with me, and this applies to me specifically because I tend, I tend to overanalyze things. Uh, um, in terms of, well, there's different types of personality profile uh, tests or inventories out there, but something called a Colby, K-O-L-B-E, I'm what's known as a strategic planner. So I like historical data. I like information. I like to take a whole bunch of different things and organize them into an effective and an efficient system. That's kind of how I'm wired, how I think. And I love depth and detail for information. I'm generally not satisfied just with a simple overview, unless it's something that I'm not really interested in. But if I take an interest in something, I like to dive deep and I like to understand all the nitty gritty. And I know everyone's not designed that way. That's fine. But back to the quote, the quote goes like this. And again, this is something that stuck with me for many years. The quote says, doing nothing is an action with consequences. And again, it, it applies to me because I can get into analysis paralysis where I'm thinking about things so much that I stop doing. But when you don't do something, it has consequences as well. And so just let, let that think in. The consequence of doing nothing is that nothing changes. And so in reality, doing nothing really means you're doing nothing different than what you're doing right now, which is probably part of how you got to where you are. There's another quote that resonates with me. If you want something that you've never had, or maybe you want something back that you used to have, you have to do something that you've never done, or you have to, st you have to start doing things that you've stopped doing. Right. Let me just say it again fluidly. If you want something you've never had, you have to do something that you've never done. And it's the same basic principle. The current state of dis-ease or dysfunction that you might be in right now is a result of how the choices that you've made 
and influences from the environment, which may or may not be under your control, it's how these things influence your genetic makeup, particularly the largest portion of your gene pool that is modifiable. So that's, that's diet. Here's another example of this idea of inputs and outputs. Let's talk about exercise, which is a major component of your lifestyle, and it's a major lever that you can pull to create change, to change the input in your system to get a different output. But understand this from the get-go. Only about 20% of the U.S. population meets the minimum guidelines for exercise each week. And that's only one out of five people in the general population. And it might be less among you guys because you're dealing with health challenges that others might not. Things like fatigue or maybe low motivation or perhaps it's joint and muscle pain that in your mind prevents you from exercising. And I'm, I'm willing to bet that for many of you, your exercise tolerance is low, meaning that you can, you can go to the gym, you can work out, but it's easy to overdo it, and then you, you pay the price. And, and truth be told, it's a very common mindset here in North America. I would imagine it's the same in pretty much all major industrialized countries that you know people say, I know I should exercise, but I don't. And maybe it's because someone doesn't like to or they feel like they don't have enough time. That's a major cop-out. Maybe that's a topic for a different podcast. But this whole idea of like, I know I should exercise, I just don't, or I don't like to, guys, that's a choice. And it's a choice where doing nothing is an action with consequences. So here's a couple of things to think about as it relates to exercise as an input into your system to create change. Um, There was a, a recent paper I think it was published in 2020 from the British Medical Journal that looked at the impact of cardiorespiratory training. That would be like aerobic training or high-intensity intervals, uh, some mixture of those things. So they looked at the impact of cardiorespiratory training as well as strength training on what's called all-cause mortality. And and that phrase means exactly what it means. Like we look at all causes of death, whether that is heart disease, stroke, cancer, Uh, chronic lower respiratory infections, and so on. This was a very large study with thousands of people that they followed for, I believe it was six or seven years. Um, In in studies designed like that, all other things being equal, tend to mean that the results are relevant and they're true. So we can generally trust them. And and so what they had is they had several groups that they tracked over time. In this study, one group did neither cardiorespiratory training, let's just call it aerobic training, One group did neither aerobic training or cardio, and they didn't do strength training. And they were the point of comparison, right? So they looked at the all-cause mortality in the group that didn't do cardio, didn't lift weights, and then they compared them to other groups in the study. They had three other groups that were age and gender match, right? Because you want to compare a 55-year-old guy to a 55-year-old guy, not to an 18-year-old girl, for example. So one group did only cardio type training. Another group only did strength training and a third group did both. They had a mixture of cardio as well as strength training that they did every week. And each of these groups met the minimum guidelines, which we'll talk about here in a second. Now the two groups who did either only cardio or only strength training both had a significant reduction in all-cause mortality. For example, 
the group that strength trained had an 11% reduction in all-cause mortality. The group did only car- that did only cardio had a, ni- I believe it's a 19% reduction in all-cause mortality. And you think, well, hey, maybe I should do cardio instead of lift weights. But here's the deal. The group that did both, they did cardio and lifted weights, they had a whopping 40% reduction in all-cause mortality. So what does that mean? Well, if you choose to do cardio and to do some strength training, lifting weights, and you meet the minimum guidelines, then at any given age, you are 40% less likely to die from anything than your peers who choose not to do those things. And that includes, again, things like heart disease and cancer, which are the top killers in any country that you want to look at. Now, maybe you're thinking, okay, doc, well, what are the minimum guidelines? Like, you know, let me see if I can commit to that or can do that. Well, um, at a minimum, you should, on the cardio side, you should get either 150 minutes total over the week of light to moderately intense cardio. So 150 minutes, 150, of light to moderately intense cardio per week. Or if you're willing to amp up the, the intensity and you can do that and recover from it, you can do a minimum of 75 minutes per week. And, and what this equates to is anywhere from 15 to 30 minutes per day for five days out of the week. You can take two days off, do other things or do nothing if you want. Um, and so again, it's, it's 15 to 30 minutes per day for five days out of the week, depending on the intensity level that you can sustain and recover from, right? The less intensely you can work, the more time you have to spend to get the results or the benefits. And if you can push the intensity a little bit, you can get away with less time. That's just the way that the physiology works. So that's the cardio part for strength training. Um, at least two sessions per week is enough to make a difference. And so you can combine those as well. And and that's what the research is very clear about is that number one, diet is a major input into your system that you have control over. Change your diet, change the inputs, change the outcome. Same thing with exercise. You control whether you go to work out or not, even if it's just starting out with a simple walking program. If you choose not to, then you're losing out on all of the protective benefits of different modes or different types of training. But let me equate this to your genes and this idea of input and output. And and please realize we can put any diet, any lifestyle choice into this paradigm so we could say similar things about sleep habits or stress management and so on. So let's talk about cardio first. When you consistently meet these minimum requirements over time for cardio training, one of the main things that that changes with that new input is called your VO2 max, VO2 max. And it's, it's technical and it's sciencey, so let me boil it down to this. Your VO2 max is a measure of how efficiently your lungs can take up oxygen and deliver them to your tissues where that oxygen is used in the energy creation cycle at the cellular level. The higher your VO2 max is, the more efficient your energy production and your metabolism is, and there's a tremendous protective effect against all causes of death, but specifically from cardio respiratory type diseases. Now, in addition to that, as you're exercising, your heart is beating harder and faster, pumping blood, greater volumes of blood in any unit of time. 
as your heart beats faster and harder, the turbulence of the blood flow across the surface of your blood vessels triggers the production of something called nitric oxide. This is a, a very short-lived signaling molecule that can act both as a hormone, as a neurotransmitter. It's part of the endocrine system, but it also does neurological stuff. But as far as vascular health goes, nitric oxide improves blood flow to your body and your brain, and it protects your blood vessels from injury, and it can even dissolve plaque deposits in your arteries. And that's not a bad deal, not at all. So that's a very quick synopsis of how adding cardiorespiratory training as, as a new input into your system can help you. So what about strength training? Well, let's put aside the aesthetic improvements of having more muscle on your frame and just looking nicer, right? There's a whole host of benefits. First, being stronger means more independence as you age. The, the greatest predictor of aging independence is your overall physical strength. So as you age, if you want to be able to shower yourself, feed yourself, clothe yourself, and wipe your own bottom, you need to maintain a certain amount of physical strength. And by the way, we lose anywhere from a half to 1% of our uh, total muscle mass every year after, say, middle age. So that's the first thing. Being stronger means you're more independent. Second, strength training improves balance and it prevents falls and fall-related injuries. And if you're over the age of, say, 60, that's a huge deal because 40% of people over the age of 60 who fall and break a hip die within a year. That's a shocking statistic, but it's accurate and true. But aside from those basic things, when you, when you use your muscles and lift things that are heavy, do resistance training or strength training, same thing, your muscles release what are called myokines. Now, there's a lot to talk about there, but I'm going to keep it to this very briefly. These myokines can reduce inflammation, and they can improve mood control. And in fact, exercise, including strength training, is the single most efficient way to combat things like depression, period. It's not SSRIs or SNRIs or antidepressant medications, it's exercise. That's what the, the literature on that is absolutely crystal clear for decades. Now, as, as and you probably don't know who this is, but he's a very famous strength coach named Mark Ripito. As he says, strong and fit people are simply harder to kill. And that's true. Reduction in all-cause mortality. So let me leave you with this thought. If you are part of the inflammation nation, especially if you have low exercise tolerance and for whatever reason you can't exercise, ask yourself this, what can you do? Start low and go slow because believe me, doing something, even if you don't think it's sufficient, is better than doing nothing even if that something is not much of anything. Because remember, doing nothing has an action with consequences. All the levers that can change your physiology that you're not pulling is an opportunity lost to make positive change. So start low, go slow, take your time, build your capacity slowly, be kind and be patient with yourself, but you have to do it. If you don't change the inputs into the system, you're not going to change the outputs of the system in six months are going to go by 
and nothing will have changed because you changed nothing. All right, that's a wrap for this episode. As always, rate, like, follow, comment. Better yet, share this podcast episode with someone that you love who you think might need to hear this message as well. We'll be back for another episode with the Inflammation Nation.